Choose Linux, episode 25, for December 26th, 2019. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Joe. I'm Drew. And I'm Mel. And here we are for episode 25. And later on we'll be talking about virtualization. But first, distro hoppers, Tails, the amnesiac distro, favored by Edward Snowden and the InfoSec community. So, L, this must have been right up your street. I am really excited to get a chance to talk about Tells. It's been on my things to play with list for quite a while. And Drew, you hadn't used this before, right? I hadn't, but it's kind of been on my list of things to try because I had been looking for a distro that I could keep just on my machine that I could spin up whenever I needed something truly private and maybe even a little more secure for if I need to do like financial transactions or something like that. And this really fits the bill. So let's get it out of the way. First of all, you two are happy with this because it uses GNOME. Maybe it's because I'm just so not used to Linux distributions that we hop to magically working that I didn't even pay attention to what it was running. I'm like, oh, it works. Great. Let's play with it. (laughs) Yeah. And it's no secret that I like GNOME, but realistically, the magic here is the underlying system and not necessarily the implementation detail of what desktop environment it's running, right? It's everything that it does and not necessarily how it presents it to you. That really is the magic of this distro. Oh, definitely, yeah. Now, I must say, I had some problems with this. It turns out that Tails is a little bit picky about which USB sticks it will work with. And I tried the USB image and then the ISO image, which is supposed to be for virtualization. And I tried multiple machines and it just would not boot. And then I changed my USB stick from my fast SanDisk one to just, I can't even remember, another make that's on the USB 2, and it suddenly worked perfectly. Yeah, Joe, I hate to break this to you, but that might not be a USB issue because I had a SANS 3.0 64-gig USB that it worked perfectly on. Yeah, I had no issues with the USB that I chose, but to be fair, mine was an older USB 2, so I'm not sure. What, you're telling me you test these distros on an old USB 2 stick? I test these distros on whatever is the first USB stick is within my reach. So, sometimes. Amen. Wow, I have a SanDisk Extreme, and it uh, is really, really fast to write in the first place and then read. And I've got two of them, actually, and neither of them worked. So, I have heard in the past that it can be a bit particular. So, if anyone tries this and it won't boot, then, yeah, try a different USB stick. That's my pro tip for you. But once I did get it booted, I found that it worked really well. I was very impressed with the persistence feature. Once you set that up, you can enter your password on each boot, and it gives you persistent files and settings and everything. Very impressed with that. And before we go too far down that road, um, I would like to note that there are a bunch of different ways which you can actually configure it. Um, When I first did it, I just burned it onto the USB and started playing with it. Then I started reading up on their documentation and went back and created a Lux Encrypt um, partition and then had a separate partition that was open so that it could look like, hey, there's just regular files here. Um, And then I started going back and forth on which section should be encrypted. Should the Lux Encrypt be on the persistence section or should the Lux Encrypt be on the OS side? So it, it is definitely an OS that you can kind of play around to fit your needs 
needs and why you're going to be using it. Yes. And in addition to that, there are some considerations for security when using that persistent storage. And so you can kind of dial in how much convenience you want versus how much security you want. So it's kind of a sliding scale. And it gives you very easy to use little sliders to turn things off or on, whether you want dot files or just file storage or email accounts in Thunderbird. Really, you can just kind of set it for the bare minimum that you need and keep the security on the rest of things. Because this distro is designed to forget everything every time it boots, right? So the more that you're telling it to remember, the less it's doing what it's really set out to do. And of course, the one thing that we haven't mentioned is that by default, all the network traffic is tunneled through Tor. Not only does it route everything through Tor, it also has like a nice little gnome extension that lets you see the connections that you have active in tor it's really slick one of the things that i thought was really well thought out here is the fact that they do give you the ability to have a non-secure non-tor browser so that you can use it whenever you're connecting let's say that you're at a hotel or a coffee shop that needs that initial connection before it will allow you Um, it's something that really just shows that a lot of thought has gone into the development of this distro And I love that that unsafe browser comes up with a giant warning screen saying only uses for captive portals. I really found it interesting that they focused on the documentation around Tells, explaining to you that just because you were using this Tor browser didn't actually mean that any of your communication was secure. They spent a lot of time explaining how any traffic coming out of that exit node, if it wasn't secure, people could tell who you were, where you were coming from, if any of that was embedded in it. And so... I feel that a lot of distros may not have spent the time to document and show kind of the flaws, and I put that in quotation mark, within the OS itself. What I really like about Tails is that it's got a really sensible software selection. You can imagine the kind of person who's going to use Tails might need Audacity to edit some clips before they send them to their editor or whatever if they're a journalist, and you've got LibreOffice. Everything that was installed seemed to be there for a good reason, and it was all stuff that I would use. Absolutely. Nothing really felt out of place here, and everything did feel very thoughtfully added. And if you do need something else, there is a way to install the application in Tails. So you can add new software on top, of course, with the caveat that anything you add won't have necessarily been tested by the team and it's kind of at your own risk. But it is nice to have that option for when you need it. And going back to that persistent storage, you can have Tails automatically reinstall any of those apps that you set up on Reboot. It's interesting how much work they actually put into that because they have the LibreOffice suite installed by default. And one of the things that people don't think about is when you open, let's say, a Word document, there are artifacts that are left behind that give information about you, like who opened it? How did you open it? Did you do it through the command line? Was it kicked off by another app? These are all things that are kept within memory that Tails has to account for to make sure that everything is cleared out when you're no longer using that system. They go to great lengths to make sure that no storage on a system is used. Everything stays on that USB stick, even if you configure it for persistent storage. And that even applies to swap space. Even if there's swap space on the system that you're booting, 
it just will ignore it because that could be another avenue for people to get your information. It really does feel like they've just thought of everything to make this the perfect distro for someone who wants to stay private. I think that passion and the fact that this project means a lot to them can be shown in little ways. For example, when I went uh, to see, like, you know, hey, if I need assistance with this and I can't get it, I can't find the documentation, they have a whole section that says, you know, contact us. We take requests in English and French and Spanish. And you know what? Requests that come in in non-perfect English are welcome as well. But before you do, read this article on open PGP keys so that you can learn how to encrypt your emails. It's thinking of the smallest thing that might make somebody vulnerable and taking the time to write out the documentation and teach people, not just focused within your own operating system. This isn't the first security-focused distro that we've ever reviewed. And I'm wondering, Elle, what your thoughts are on how this stacks up to Cubes. It's funny. So I have my little notes that I write for this. And, you know, you're going to spoil alert, but my final thoughts was pretty much, this is my cubes to go. You know, I run cubes at home for all my personal stuff, but I'm not going to lug my tower around and cubes just didn't work on my laptop. But now I have an alternative that just sits on my keychain. So that was really cool. Yeah, this is not something that you're going to use every day, right? This is something that's going to be in your toolbox, like Kali Linux as well, that you can just break out when you need it for a specific task. Security on demand. I love it. I'm going to challenge that, Joe, and say maybe it's something that we should start using every day and encouraging people to use so that we're familiar with it. The more research that I did and the more time that I've spent with Tells, and that will tell you something about this distro, because how many times do we distro hop where I'm spending a majority of my time just trying to get it installed? And it's just not a good experience. I spent my time with Tells delving into what it does, who it's targeted for, because the distribution just worked when I installed it. That's almost unheard of in these distro hops. But the amount of work that they're putting into to help, you know, journalists and victims of domestic violence and all of these individuals who need this privacy. And one of the things that they push is if everyone is using Tells and if everyone is getting comfortable with Tor, then we can not only help others who may be in need of help, but we're creating like a community where you don't know why a person is using it. You don't automatically think that they're trying to hide something because it just becomes a norm where we are using different distributions that have Tor involved within it. Does that make sense? It does make sense. That's the argument for using HTTPS on websites and encrypting your email. It should be that we're all doing it so that it doesn't look like you're up to no good if you are encrypting stuff. So Joe, I went one step further and I actually have two USBs that have Tails flashed on them and they're Lux encrypted with easy passwords for me to remember. And if I'm ever in a place where someone is talking to me about, you know, hey, I'm afraid my boyfriend is watching what I'm doing, right? You know, just somebody who's asking for help but is afraid to be able to get it, it's something that I can give to them and say, you know what, hey, plug it into your system. It's going to ask for the password. It's, you know, whatever, one, two, three password. Not that I'd ever use that. And kind of just walk them through the ability to be able to get on and Google assistance and find what they need. And hey, if somebody else finds the USB, first of all, it's Lux encrypted, and they can be like, well, I don't know what's on it. Maybe I'll never be in the situation that I need it, but if I ever am, I'm kind of happy to just have that in my back pocket. That's a really good idea. I, I do like the idea of having this around as something that you could give out. Like, even if you just had a bunch of super cheap USBs that 
you have on a keychain that at a conference you can just pull one off and hand it off to people and kind of spread the joy and spread the security that might be a good way to get this project even more eyes on it than it already has. So when I was looking at the users and supporters of Tales and Tor as a whole, I found it interesting. You had, you know, Reporters Without Borders, Freedom from the Press Foundation. You had the National Network to End Domestic Violence. And then the company that makes my bath bombs, Lush, (laughs) was one of the main financial supporters. And to me, that just says, you know what, the word is getting out there and people are not just concerned about their privacy, but actively working to take that back. So the question I always ask is, is this going to stick around for us? And it sounds like it is, but not as a daily driver, as we said. Definitely for me. I think it's something that I really need to delve into more and I'm looking forward to maybe even helping contribute to the documentation. So thank you guys for helping me find something new to be passionate about. And I will absolutely be keeping it around as well, though not necessarily on a USB stick. But I think we're going to talk about that here in just a minute. Well, yeah, but before we get to that, let's see what we're going to talk about next time on Distro Hoppers in a couple of episodes' time. So let's go to distrowatch.com and press the random distribution button. And what have we got? Ghost BSD. This isn't Linux. We can't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a user-friendly desktop operating system based on TrueOS, which is based on FreeBSD. And the goal is to create an easy-to-use and familiar workspace that can be used at home or office and for data rescue. That doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's BSD, what you expect. I have actually used this before, and I had a pretty good experience, but that was quite a long time ago. I presume neither of you two have checked out BSD. You know, I tried FreeBSD out once when I was a wee young Linux newbie. And uh, just kind of wanted to see what the fuss was about. And I didn't get very far with it, but I've never tried any of the more, uh, let's say, user-friendly BSDs. So this will be an interesting uh, exercise for me, for sure. I've never used anything around BSD, but uh, I hear that there's a podcast out there that might be helpful for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, BSD Now. Maybe we'll have to write to them after we check it out. But yeah, I'm looking forward to that because they've got Mate and XFCE versions, so I'll be happy. So you teased it there, Drew, and we're going to talk about virtualization because sometimes you don't have that extra machine to test stuff out on. And if you've got a fair amount of RAM in your main machine, then there's no reason why you can't virtualize stuff. Now, my experience has mostly been with VirtualBox, which you somewhat turn your nose up at. Yes, I do. And, you know, I hear that VirtualBox is still alive and well and can do quite a bit of stuff, but for me, it's all about KVM. I want the virtualization that's built right into the Linux kernel. I think it's great, and the performance is amazing, and it's a really flexible system. So I tasked both of you to try out KVM and use it via QEMU and libvirt and see how you got along with that. So how did you do? You know, Drew, I started looking through your notes, and I'm going to call you out on not being (laughs) newbie-friendly. Yeah, your documentation sucks, Drew. (laughs) I started looking through it, and there's actually, there are a lot of things that when using Linux, sometimes we turn into monkeys with keyboards and just copy and pasta. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to understand what I'm doing. I was like, all right, well, how many people really know what KVM is? And I'm like, okay, well, let me go through. I'm like, all right. 
type one hypervisor, okay, runs on my bare metal, isolated hosted environments. That I understood, but I actually really didn't understand what QEMU was and really what it was doing to help emulate the machine's processor. So I actually spent a little bit of time reading up on that and what libvert was. It just seemed like a lot of acronyms crunched in together. I don't know. I don't know if you want to take a little bit of time and maybe educate the rest of us that haven't been doing on what's actually happening when we took this challenge. You know, that's a really good point, Al. I specifically didn't put in notes about what each of these things are because I wanted to give you that discovery. But what it boils down to is you've got KVM, which is the kernel-based virtual machine, and that talks to the hardware in your computer, either through Intel or AMD. And then beside that, you've got QEMU, which is a quick emulator, which kind of handles the next layer up from KVM. And then to orchestrate it all together, you've got libvirt. And using all three of those combined, you're able to spin up virtual machines that leverage your real hardware through the kernel in order to get better performance than some of the software-based virtualization that a lot of us have been using for years. I've generally got quite a lot of laptops around because I'm a bit of a hoarder, so I've not done that much virtualization of the desktop, and so that's why I've just stuck with VirtualBox. But when I think of KVM, I generally think about virtualization on servers rather than on the desktop, but it turns out that Virt Manager is this really simple GUI that is almost simpler than VirtualBox and seemingly a much better experience, at least for me. I think you're completely right. Um, I've never been a VirtualBox fan, and I'm that person that has it running just in the middle of the screen because VirtualBox extensions never works out for me. So to have an alternative that, I don't know, it was just point and click and, hey, I want this. I did notice that it had more capabilities to be able to go in and fine-tune things, but it wasn't necessarily required, which I actually enjoyed. Yeah, and so the first distro I tried was obviously Zubuntu because, you know, you've got to virtualize Zubuntu on top of Zubuntu for a bit of inception. And it worked so well. You could full screen it, and it was just as if you were using it on the bare metal. Whereas I'd always had problems with VirtualBox with getting the resolution right, and I could never quite make it feel native. Whereas I could trick someone very easily, I think, with Virt Manager. The only thing is if you move the mouse up to the top of the screen in the middle, you get the option to take it off full screen. But apart from that, I think you could convince someone. I think probably the biggest thing about using KVM and QEMU and Vert Manager and all of it, rather than something like VirtualBox, is the performance because you can get so close to native and really it can feel like it's on bare metal. But there are some considerations that you do have to take into account to get there. And to me, the biggest one is backing storage. Yeah, because by default, it kind of tries to emulate SATA, which gives you quite a bit of overhead there, but you can change it to be much more efficient. There's a set of drivers called Vert.io, and those drivers will, instead of trying to emulate hardware directly, be a para-virtualized system that 
the guest can know it's being virtualized and kind of speak a native language. So you don't have that overhead of something like SATA or IDE or something that's going to run a little slower. And instead, the guest assumes that it is a virtual machine and it will behave accordingly. So even though the whole idea of using virtualization is to have quote-unquote fake hardware, you can go even further and say, yeah, I'm using fake hardware and let the guest machine operate accordingly. Now, there is an alternative to Vert Manager called Boxes, which is part of GNOME. And if you're using that GNOME desktop, then it is very slickly integrated. I'm a huge Boxes fan. I, I use it probably, it probably is pretty close to being my daily driver because it's where I spin up most of my VMs. I've always liked it because it's just, it's simple to use. Like, I don't even have to go find the ISO most of the time. I can just click through the menu and decide what I want. Or if I want something that I'm, isn't available, I can just, you know, paste in the URL of where to go get it, and it just builds it out for me. Like, it's the set it and forget it mindset. Yeah, it's very slick that when you create a new VM, you can just say, yeah, please get me Fedora 31, and it just goes and downloads the ISO for you. I really think that the team behind Boxes has done a really fantastic job in shaping the application so that it is really user-friendly and presents just the options you need. And there are some aspects of it that I wish I had a little more power over, but the good news is Boxes does connect to libvert in such a way that you can configure the boxes vms independently of boxes and still have boxes launch them for you so not only is it pretty it can also still be powerful and flexible if you know how to do it well that's the win for open standards and open source right you've got this handy graphical interface to it but if you want to take it further you can even dig down into the command line and create your virtual images and configure it exactly how you want, but then launch it via boxes in this really convenient way. Well, and you don't even have to go all the way down to the command line. You can actually connect to the user instance of libvirt from Virtual Machine Manager and configure your boxes in Vert Manager directly, which is great. You get that nice, flexible GUI interface in Vert Manager and then you can still have all of your boxes laid out with the nice previews and all of the controls that are available under boxes. So really, you can have the best of both worlds without much effort. One thing that I really like about boxes is that when you create the storage for your virtual machine, it creates a sparse image by default. And what that means is that it's dynamically resized. So if you say it's going to be 20 gigabytes, it doesn't just instantly create a 20 gigabyte file taking up all that space. It creates an image that will be up to 20 gigabytes, but will only use that storage as it needs it, which is something you can do in Vert Manager, but not by default. Right. When you go to create a new virtual machine in Vert Manager, you have to set the storage manually and go into the advanced options and change the maximum allowed storage versus what it allocates to begin with. Otherwise, it uses full allocation, which is technically better for performance, but it is going to go ahead and use all that space on your disk to start with. Another thing I really like about boxes is that if you power down your virtual machine, you can then 
adjust how much RAM it's using just with a slider really easily. So you don't have to commit to, say, half your RAM. You might find that, well, actually, I don't need that much or I need more. And it's just trivial to adjust that. And if you wanted to get a little more advanced, you can actually, in Vert Manager, set a minimum and a maximum RAM allotment. And if the guest OS supports it, then it can only use the RAM that it actually needs and release the rest to the operating system. But not every guest is going to support that feature. Like, for example, if you try to do this with Windows, it's just not going to work. Right, but with modern Linux distributions like Ubuntu or Fedora, that's going to work perfectly. And it's worth mentioning that you can do this with CPU cores as well. So you can set a maximum allotment for those and a minimum allotment. And whatever the allocation is, the virtual machine will use what it needs when it needs it and pass the rest back on to the host computer. And there are some caveats there, like if you're trying to do pass-through, this is a bad idea. But for most simple use cases, it's perfectly fine if you're virtualizing Linux. Now, one issue that I ran into was the ability to share files between the guest OS and my host. That I'd hoped would be easier, but it turns out is a little bit fiddly. Yeah, it really is. And QEMU does have a built-in Samba share functionality. So there is the option, but I've never been able to get it working quite right. And what I found is much easier is just sharing things over either Nextcloud or if you have a NAS in the house, you can connect those. So there are ways to do it locally, but honestly, I just leverage my network instead, and I find that to be much easier. Yeah, or you can just use USB redirection. So you just plug a USB drive in, mount it on your host OS, copy the files that you want on, unmount it, and then redirect it into the VM, which is just a click of a button in Vert Manager, and then you've got access to the files there. It's a little bit fiddly, but I think that if you only want to share a few files here and there, then it's probably the easiest way to do it. That is a really good way to share files and really to get any USB device attached to your system. But there is a caveat here, and that's if you install GNOME Boxes as a flat pack, it currently does not support USB redirection. So that option is really only available if you install it through your distribution's repositories. So guys, after listening to you all, I have another idea for a podcast y'all can do. You can podcast about what it is that you do in your day-to-day, because I have absolutely no need for 99% of what you just talked about. I honestly use VMs as disposable environments that I spin up, and then I do a thing, and then I forget about it and delete it later on. Like I really want to know what you guys do that requires so much going into the weeds of your virtual boxes. Well, honestly, I just think it's kind of fun, but... I also need it for some specific tools that I use uh, in, in my audio process that I can't get under Linux. So for me, KVM and QEMU is a way that I could get rid of dual booting Windows altogether. Since I got this working really well, I haven't had the need for a dual boot Windows at all on my system. I can simply launch the VM, do my work, and then shut down the VM. And not only does it boot faster than it would from bare metal, I find that the performance is just as good and allows me to do my work much easier. 
So it's a win-win all around for me. But you're right, Al. If all you want to do is quickly spin up a distro like Tails to just do a bit of banking or whatever, it can be really, really simple. But like anything in Linux, it's as complicated as you want it to be. You can always dig down into how it's all working and see what else it can do. And if you really do want to take it further and get into the weeds, there's an episode of Linux Unplugged from the summer, uh, episode 308, which I'll link in the show notes, which really goes into PCI pass-through and how to really get the most out of this. Yeah, I was on that episode, and Alex came on and really schooled us on how to get pass-through working right and getting the most performance you can out of a virtual machine. It was illuminating and really helped me get where I am now with virtualization. Yeah, and we haven't really mentioned it, but gaming is another reason to do this. There are some games that are only available for Windows, but with PCI pass-through and all the stuff that you guys talked about on that episode, it is possible to do it all from within Linux, which is pretty cool. But in conclusion then, I am definitely going to keep using Vert Manager. VirtualBox is dead to me now. That makes me happy to hear. I'm glad you're on the Vert Manager train. And Al, you're going to keep using boxes then? Yep, I like my boxes. Well, we'd better wrap it up then, but go to choose slash subscribe for all the ways to get the future episodes and choose slash contact if you want to get in touch with us. You can always reach out on Twitter where I'm at L underscore O underscore punk at LO punk. I'm at Drew of Doom. And I'm at Joe Rissington. We'll be back in two weeks. Bye.